The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hey, Cornerstone. Man, it is, it is so good to be back. I've been on vacation uh, for about a month. Part of that, part of the time, I had the opportunity to go over to Southern California. I spoke at Aaron McRae's church, and I think you guys know that uh, Brian Wurzel is there also. I just want to tell you, those guys love you, and uh, man, they just care about you so much, and they sent their affection this way. And, uh, but man, it is good to be back in the room. Glad to be part of this series that we're doing right now. We're in a series, it's called Unshakable, and we're in the third week of this series. And here's why we're doing this, guys. You and I need to be prepared to give an answer for the faith that you and I have in our hearts. I don't believe that we have ever seen more skepticism, more criticism about the teachings of Jesus Christ and this faith that you and I have in our entire lifetimes than what you and I are experiencing right now. I challenge you to turn on the TV set, flip through the channels, and not come across multiple, multiple programs that are literally flying in the face and saying, hey, none of this is accurate, none of this stuff is true, it's all a bunch of baloney. And I believe that every last one of us, if you have not been already, at some point are going to be challenged to defend and go, look, this is why this faith that I have is reasonable. And that as a Christian, I have not taken some blind leap into mental suicide by putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, you ready for this? The most reasonable thing for someone to believe is to believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And that you and I need to be willing to stand for the faith, to defend the faith. Matter of fact, Scripture says this uh, in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3. You don't have to go there. Let me read this for you real quickly. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, it's, uh, it's verse 15. Here's what it says. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Look, put him in first place and be willing to stand with him as Lord and, and forget about what's politically correct. Who cares how many of your friends laugh at you and scoff at you for your faith? Put your life in and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and be willing to suffer if that's what it takes to take this stand. But, you ready? But, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. You and I in that moment are supposed to be good. Look, 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 I get you don't agree. I get you don't understand where I am and why I've placed my faith there. But let me explain to you as best I can why this is the most reasonable thing that you can do with your life. It's more reasonable than evolution. It's more reasonable than what Muhammad taught. It's more reasonable than what Confucius taught. And, it, and it's more reasonable than atheists. I'm just telling you, when you line up the facts, when you take an objective look at it, you have to come to my camp. And that you and I, every last one of us, ought to be prepared to give that answer. And then it says, you ready? 
for everyone asked to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is not about winning an argument. It's about helping a heart. But every last one of us has got to be ready and, and willing to give that testimony, even if that testimony costs us something for having shared it. So here's where we've been. Uh, we started two weeks ago and we said, is it reasonable to believe there's a God? What's the most, is it more reasonable to believe in a universe apart from and absent of a God or is it more reasonable to believe that there is a designer, a creator? Last week we covered this idea that says, hey, is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is God's message to us, that it's accurate and it's faithful and it's true and that you and I can reliably put our faith and trust in what the Bible says. And today, here's what we're going to tackle together. Is it reasonable? Is it even in the realm of logic to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he is who he said he was? Is that a reasonable thing to do? Or have all of us committed intellectual suicide who are people of faith? Now, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to take notes as we do this. Matter of fact, uh, as you came in today, you got a card inside of your bulletin just like this. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to take and flip to the backside of the card. Take the notes so that when that moment comes when someone says, hey, wait a minute, why in the way? Pretty crazy that you can pull out your card and go, oh, yeah, I got a card. Okay? And, and then you can be helpful. You'll have the information. You'll be prepared for the conversation. Now, here's the deal. I know that everybody at Santan already knows all these answers, uh, but the Chandler people need this, okay? So bear with us, <laughs> bear, bear with us, Santan, and if I get off track, if I make a mistake, then you can just text it in and help me out for next service on the deal. But guys, grab the card, let's take some notes today, to get, let's be prepared when the conversation comes up. So here's where we're going to start together with this whole conversation about liar, lunatic, or Lord. And I know that there's a bunch of us in the room, and you'd say, well, Lynn, I've already kind of seen that, but here's what you need to know, that as you and I begin this conversation with our friends, with our colleagues, with our neighbors that haven't come to a place of faith, as you and I try to help them understand why this is a reasonable decision in our lives, this is the best place to begin the conversation with them. And I just want to say that I know there's some people in this room and you're pre-Jesus right now. You, you haven't made this journey and made this decision in your life. And probably you couldn't be in a better room. You get the chance to listen into the conversation, to kind of ride the coattails of what we're going to say today. And who knows? It's just possible you may come far enough along that you go, hey, I get it. I get it. I get that the most reasonable thing I could possibly do is take that final step of faith and put my trust in Jesus. I, 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 think I get it. So we're going to start here with liar, lunatic, Lord. Here's the deal. You, when you discuss Jesus Christ, have to put Jesus Christ in one of three boxes. He is either one of the biggest liars of all of history. I mean, the deception, in other words, here's the, he knows that he's not who he says he is. He knows that he is deceiving people. And if that's true, you guys get he is way, way worse than Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff lied to hundreds. Jesus would have lied to millions. And he would have changed eternity for us. He would have deceived us about how to get to God. He, he would have taken our lives and made them vastly different than what they would have been. And so we, you and I have all been duped. If Jesus fits into the liar box, he may be the greatest liar of all time if that's the box you put Jesus in. The second option is, is that Jesus is just a few marbles shy of a full bag. That he's, things are rattling around in there and the truth is, uh, he is just, he's, he's off, he's a lunatic. He believes this. 
He's a normal man. He's just like the rest of us. But somewhere he's so deluded, he's so self-deceived that he actually believes he's God. And at that point, I'm just going to tell you, Charles Manson has nothing on him. Man, bring Jesus the straight coat because if he's, if he's whacked, he is whacked big time. He is way, way off. And the third option is that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that Jesus is actually the Son of God come in the flesh to die for our sins, that he is deity and he is Lord. And we made that box a little bigger because look here, let's just be honest. If you're just going to look at this uh, on first blush from human terms, this, this box is the most improbable. These are much more likely and much, much simpler to try to put Jesus in. This one, this one takes an awful lot of work. And so we made that box a little bigger. Now, here's what you got to get in the moment. There's a box missing. And the box that's missing is most people's favorite box to put Jesus in. And it's the box of good teacher. Now, here's what you need to know if you have this discussion with your friends. You cannot concede that box. That box doesn't exist. And if you put Jesus in the box of good teacher, the reality is what you do is you relegate Jesus to being a fortune cookie. That, that I can just say, well, you know, I mean, look, he was a good teacher, and so he's got some advice, and he's got some helpful hints on how to live life. But the other part is, you know, there's some places that I disagree, and I'm not sure that I, you know, fully think he had a handle on that. You know, he was a pretty good guy with pretty good information, but there's also some misses in his information, and he's a fortune cookie. But here's what you need to know, and here's what you need to help anyone you're talking to about this as you defend your faith. That box of good teacher doesn't exist. Here's why. Because the claims that Jesus Christ made about himself are so radical, they are so outrageous, that they don't fit in the box of good teacher. He can't possibly be a good teacher and claim that. And so the box doesn't get perfect. Let, let's go for just a second. Grab your Bibles, and you're going to go with me this time, and go with me to the book of John. And let's just look for a second at what Jesus said about himself, the claims that he made about who he was and what he was doing here on earth. So it's John chapter 14. And if you're not real familiar today, if you go to the back of your Bible and work to the left, you're going to find this book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 14, and I know a bunch of you guys have like Bible apps on your phone and stuff like that, um, but, if, but if you do, could you like take your bulletin and just like thumb through the pages for a second so I hear rattling pages and I think you're looking, okay, all right, that would help me, make me feel better right now. Uh, John chapter 14, here's what Jesus, watch this, here's what Jesus says about himself. Now get the moment. The moment is Jesus is about to go to the cross, and so he's saying to his disciples, look, I'm getting ready uh, to leave. I'm not going to be around uh, here shortly, and uh, honestly, uh, you're going to probably look for me and wish you could find me, and you're not going to be able to find me, but, 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 it's okay, because the way to get to me, you know, and you'll figure this out, to which the disciples go, okay, whew, Jesus, all right, Th this is you getting a little weird again. This is, you, you know, you're teaching, this kind of sounds like one of the parables again. And in the midst of this, a guy by the name of Thomas says to Jesus, look, Jesus, look, okay, okay, I, I just got to be honest with you, I am struggling here. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Jesus, look, look, look. Just show us the Father. You keep claiming to be the Son of God, show us Dad. 
Show us the Father. If you show us the Father, I'll put all my objections aside. I'll put all my doubts aside. Just show us the Father, and I'll be okay. And this is Jesus' response. If you've got a Bible that has red light, this is Jesus. Here's his answer to the skepticism about who he was. It's John chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Actually, let me start in verse 5 for you. Here's what it says. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know uh, where you're going, so how in the world are we going to know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. I wonder what Jesus means by no one. I'm thinking maybe, stick with me on this, maybe he means no one. Just maybe. No one, you ready? No one comes to the Father except through me. You get the radical claim that Jesus Christ is making. He's saying, look, no one's making it to heaven. No one's getting to God except through me. You cannot get to God through Buddha. You cannot get to God through Muhammad. Joseph Smith is not going to get you there. I am the only way, and no one, no one gets to God except through me. That's crazy, unless it's true. And then he goes on, you ready? If you really knew me, Jesus said, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And you get that Jesus in this moment saying, look, look, look. I'm, this is the Trinity. I, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you realize that with unequivocal clearness, Jesus is saying, and I am deity. Now, guys, I'm just telling you, that claim is so radical, you can't be a good teacher. Because a good teacher can't claim to be God. Because he's either lying, which makes him a charlatan, He's a lunatic and really believes this, or he's who he says he is. But you can't be a good teacher and claim to be God. The box doesn't exist. And just in case you're wondering and going, well, you know, Lynn, I'm, I'm not sure. Is that really what he intended to say? Go with me to chapter 10. Go back to your left just a little bit. Chapter 10, verse 30. This is Jesus again. I mean, I don't know how to be any clearer than what he's going to say right here. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Which leaves you and me in the moment that just simply says, okay, pretty bold, pretty out there. So which box applies? He's, he's, either, he's either a liar. He's either doing his very, very best to take us advantage of us, rake in a couple offerings. He's going to buy his Hummer 4 donkey. That's, that's the plan. 
or he's an absolute lunatic. This, this guy believes this, and he is whacked out of his head. And the truth is, how whacked are we for believing him? Or this guy, this Jesus, is exactly who he said he was, which then demands a response. And the question that comes is, which box is most reasonable, given the evidence, to put Jesus in? And so here we go, and, and on your card, uh, on the back, here we go. Number one, here, here's the evidence that I would share. What I've tried to give you is the three, what I believe are the most simple, most compelling conversations to have with your friend who's struggling to figure out Jesus to help move them closer to a place of reasonable faith, okay? So here's number one. It's the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's why this is critical, and it's why you and I get all excited about Easter and we say, look, this is the pinnacle of our faith. It's a big day, because here's the deal. There's no way to pull off a resurrection without God's power. In other words, there has been no human who's ever existed who's been able to say to death, ah, never mind. There's no way to come back from the dead without evoking God's power, which means simply this. If the resurrection is true, it's God's seal of approval on Jesus to say, he is exactly who he told you he was because, think about this, if Jesus was a liar, if he was a charlatan deceiving the masses, God would never raise him from the dead. God would say, no, 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 the best thing for that liar is for him to be buried and forgotten. And God would never lend resurrection power to a deceiver. If Jesus was out of his mind, there's no way that God would propagate that delusion on the rest of mankind. There's no way that he would raise somebody who belonged in an insane asylum in a straitjacket and say, hey, I'm going to put my authenticity, I'm going to put my seal of verification on a lunatic. And if somebody really does resurrect from the dead, if God gives him that seal of approval, if it really happened, if the resurrection is true, then God was saying in no unequivocal terms, this is my son, and everything he told you about himself and about me is absolutely true, if the resurrection really happened. That's why the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection are so powerful. How many of you guys watch uh, like Operation ID or 2020? How many of you guys watch that? Okay. So there's like three people in here that think, yeah. No, I'm tempted. I, I got to tell you, I'm intrigued by that stuff. Man, I am intrigued. I, you know, I like seeing how did they do it and how did he get the antifreeze into her cup of coffee? I mean, that's just a big deal to me. No, 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 no. Not like, not like I'd ever do that. With the exception of maybe my neighbor's cat. But I mean, I, other than that, I, you know, I, it's, just, it's just the, you know, how did that work? You know, it's pretty intriguing. You realize that any detective, any detective would love to have an eyewitness account. The vast, 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 vast majority of all criminal court cases, including murder, are decided by circumstantial evidence because it's really, really hard to find somebody who was standing there, watched them pull the trigger, saw the bullet, hit the... Per because most crime is committed behind closed doors, right? So, so having an eyewitness is gold, if you can even figure out one. So let me ask, how many eyewitnesses 
are there to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Grab your Bible. 1 Corinthians, it's going to be to the right if you've kept your Bible open. If you closed your Bible or your app, go to the back, start working to the left. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Look, look, look. This is the most critical conversation we can have. It says this is the first importance conversation. This is the thing that you and I have got to figure out of first importance. Ready? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture that he was buried, and that he, ready, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now think think about this. How many eyewitnesses would you need to be sure? I mean, how many eyewitnesses would have to come if you were sitting on a jury before you go, okay, well, I, I, I've got that many eyewitnesses. I'm pretty, most of us would be happy with like two or three. You said, man, I got two or three people. They all said the same story. They all told the same thing. All of their accounts line up. And I got three, I, I mean, it's pretty. How many would you need? Five? Ten? How about 500 plus? Can you imagine being the jury in that court case and the first 50 have already come up? Said, no, no, no. I was there. I saw Jesus come out of the grave. I mean, he's alive. I talked with him. I shook his hand. He gave me an autograph. How many would you have to have? And after 50, would you not be poking your eyes out as a jury saying, look, 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 the other 450 don't need to come. I'm convinced. 500 plus eyewitnesses that say, I saw Jesus physically alive after the resurrection. Now, guys, think about this. Did people really believe this? You realize Paul in this passage says, look, of the 500 who saw Jesus, most of them are still living. You get what he's doing in this moment. When he's standing there saying, the resurrection is real, he's calling out the skeptics and saying, look, I've got almost 500 of these people still alive today. If you want to have an interview, I'm ready. How does he play that card if he's not ready to back it up? More than that. I think the pertinent question is, imagine this. Imagine you served on a jury. And as you served on the jury, you convicted the defendant. You said, nah, beyond a shadow of a doubt, all 12 of us agree, he's guilty. And then you recommend the death penalty. And they put him to death. And then a few weeks later, someone comes up and says, hey, we've got some additional evidence. We think the verdict should be overturned. And so they re-impanel the same jury. They bring you back in. You're the one who gave him the death penalty. How biased would you be in that moment to go, look, <laughs> I am hoping, I'm hoping against hope that they can't prove to me this guy was innocent because it means I killed an innocent man. 
And so even as they present the evidence, you would be inclined to go, look, I, I, I'm, I'm going to lean as much as I can on the guilty side because I don't want to be the guy who killed an innocent man. This is interesting. And I put on your thinking hats because you've got to catch this moment. You realize that that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. That the very jury that convicted him reversed their decision. Grab your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. It's going to be a little bit to the left if your Bible's still open. Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you go to the back of your Bible, work left. Acts chapter 2. Let me set up the moment. It's 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a feast called Pentecost. The Jews are all gathered together in Jerusalem, which, by the way, where was Jesus killed? Jerusalem. And now they're gathered together in the Jewish temple celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. And on that day, Peter gets up and delivers a sermon to the people, to the jury that killed Jesus 50 days ago. And his sermon goes something like this. You guys, you guys that voted for conviction and killed Jesus, he is alive and he is Lord and you killed the Son of God. Now, I'm just going to say, that's a bad sermon. And it's the wrong crowd. It's the wrong crowd to have that sermon with. Okay? Matter of fact, here we go. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 36. This is part of Peter's sermon. Here's what he says. Therefore, okay, remember, he's talking to the people who killed Jesus. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, you gave him the death penalty, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Why are those guys so convicted? Because they've had 50 days to hear about and wit talk to the witnesses of the resurrection. And they've had 50 days to figure out they blew it. And if you don't think they're convinced, if you don't think they absolutely reverse their decision based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jump with me down to verse 41. Here's what it says. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Guys, what does it mean to you? Think about this. What does it mean to you that the very city that called Jesus a liar and a lunatic, that crucified him and said no, is the very place that Christianity explodes from. It becomes the center of faith in Jesus Christ. And the only thing that changes, you ready for this? The resurrection. The resurrection. And if Jesus be raised from the dead, then there's only one box that fits. Because it's God's seal of approval. The second thing, the second argument, the second place I would take somebody who's skeptical about faith and struggling is this, it's the martyr's confession. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the disciples of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, there's 11 left because remember Judas betrayed, went out and hung himself. Of the 11 that were left, guess how many of them died a martyr's death proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Anybody know out of the 11? 10. John... John is allowed to finish out his life in a prison cell. 
but the other 10 are all tortured for teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. Matter of fact, here, let, let, me, let me give you a list. James, uh, James the apostle of the Lord was the second recorded martyr in all of Scripture. Stephen, if you remember, was the first uh, martyr. Both Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius, both ancient historians, report that after seeing the courage and unrecanting spirit of James, the executioner, the guy who was chopping James's head off, when he heard James's testimony and saw the faith of James to say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real, when he saw that and saw that he was willing to die for that testimony, was so convinced of Christ's resurrection that the executioner became a believer and was then executed next to James. Peter, although Peter denied Christ three times, think about the guys, Peter, the guy who when a little girl questioned him, ran away crying like a little girl. That Peter. But after seeing the resurrection, ready? Peter, although Peter denied Jesus Christ three times before the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he was willing to be martyred for his belief. And according to Eusebius, Peter thought himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his master and requested that he be crucified upside down. Peter, the scaredy cat. Andrew. Andrew, who introduced his brother Peter uh, to Christ, was martyred six years after Peter, after preaching Christ's resurrection to the Scythians and the Trichians. He, too, was crucified for his faith. As Hippopotamus tells us, Andrew was hanged on an olive tree at Petraea in a town called Achaia. Thomas, remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? I'm not sure you're who you say you are, Jesus. Show us the Father, Thomas. Thomas was well known for doubting, and because of his reluctance to believe the other apostles' witness of the resurrection. Remember, they'd already seen him. Thomas hadn't seen him yet. After Christ appeared to Thomas, he believed unto death. Thomas sealed his testimony as he was, ready for this, thrust through with pine spears, tormented with red-hot plates of iron, and then burned alive. Thomas. Philip. Philip saw the glory of Christ after the resurrection. Philip ended up evangelizing in, in Philigra, where hostile Jews had him tortured and then crucified. Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, desperately wanted the Jews to accept Christ. He wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, when he was beheaded at Nadavdevar. Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, uh, later paid the price for his profession through a hideous death. Unwilling to recant his proclamation of the risen Christ, he was flayed. You know what flayed is? They skinned him alive. He was flayed and crucified because he said Jesus rose from the dead and would not recant. James, the lesser. To force James to deny Christ's resurrection, men positioned him on the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Unwilling to deny what he knew to be true, James was thrown down off the temple. When he hits the ground, he does not die, and so they have to come and beat him the rest of the way to death with clubs. Simon the Zealot. Simon was a Jewish zealot who strived to set his people free from Roman oppression. After he saw with his own eyes the resurrection of Jesus, he became a zealot for the gospel. 
Historians tell us that in many places, Simon preached the good news of Jesus Christ's resurrection in Egypt, in Cyrene, in Africa, in Britain, in Libya, in Persia. His martyrdom brought about by the governor of Syria verified his testimony. Thaddeus, after he witnessed Christ's resurrection, Thaddeus knew the answer. He preached the risen Christ in the midst of pagan priests in Mesopotamia. He was eventually beaten to death with sticks, showing that the word of Christ was true. Now, guys, I, here's the deal. Why? Why were these guys willing to be tortured over the fact that they had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that it was true? Let's, let's be honest. There's not very many things I'm willing to die for. I hope I would die for Jesus Christ. I hope I would die for my family. I'm not sure about you, okay? But there, there, that list, I'm just going to say, that list of what I would, that list is small. And I'm just going to, you can call me a sissy, you can call me anything you want. But, but you light a fire under my feet, I'm going, woo, no, 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 never mind, I didn't know, I was teasing. I mean, if it's a lie, if it's a lie, I'm not going to die for a lie, right? I mean, if it's a lie and you start peeling my flesh off, I'm going to admit it pretty quick. The first fingernail you take off, I'm going to go, oh, never mind. If it's a lie, what would motivate me to allow men to take my flesh off? Because I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt what I'm dying for is true. And think about it, guys. What's motivating the… It's not like these guys end up making a lot of money for the gospel. They all die paupers. None of them gets elected to political office. None of them gets their own reality show on MTV. What's motivating them to die for this? Other than they absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt in the deepest core of their humanity that they are dying for the truth that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And I know, I know some of us in here are going, well, I mean, why would God allow that? Why would God take 10 of his choicest servants, I mean, the men who walk with Jesus, why would he allow them to be tortured to death? I mean, if God's a loving God. You know why? For you. For you. That 2,000 years later, you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these men who claimed to see Jesus alive after the resurrection were willing to die and sign their confession in their own blood so that you would know it was true. And so God asked the unimaginable of them so that you and me could have confidence 2,000 years later in their testimony. Third thing, third conversation that I'd have with my friend if I was trying to help them move closer uh, to faith, and it's simply this, the number of prophecies that are fulfilled regarding the life of Jesus is unthinkable, it's unimaginable. The number and the accuracy with which the prophecy of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. So here's what you need to know. There are over 315 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Jesus. There's 44 distinct ones. In other words, some of those prophecies repeat. Born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. 
okay? So they repeat each other. But there's 44 distinct prophecies about the life of Jesus. A man by the name of Stoner, a German mathematician, began to think about it and thought, it's, it's, it's improbable that anybody could fulfill these 44 prophecies. How, it, it just mathematically, by ratio, it's unthinkable that anybody could fulfill this. So here's what he did. He took eight prophecies that he could calculate the ratios, the odds of somebody fulfilling those eight prophecies. That's what's on the front side of your card. Okay, so here's the prophecies that Stoner took. Now, remember this. He's taking eight out of the 44. There's still 36 prophecies that are not even considered in these ratios. He just took the eight he felt he could calculate. And here's what they are. Born in Bethlehem. So you just simply stop and you say, okay, out of all of history, how many people have ever been born in Bethlehem versus how many people have been born anywhere else in the world? That's the ratio. Uh, born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, enter Jerusalem on a donkey, hands and feet pierced, sold for 30 pieces of silver, price given for a potter's field, silent before his accusers, crucified with thieves. Now, as, as Stoner took the mathematical probabilities, went through the entire process, here's the odds he came up with that somebody could actually fulfill just those eight prophecies about the Messiah. 10 to the 17th power. Okay, now, so here's the deal, guys. The only person in here who went, oh, are the mathematicians. Because the rest of us are going. Okay, so here, it is 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And I'm just going to tell you that if you had a penny for every one of those, you'd be the richest man ever in the history of the world. I mean, you would be unspeakable. You'd have the world's wealth. It is an unspeakably big number. Here's the best way I can help you grasp this number, maybe. The odds. The odds that one person could fulfill just those eight prophecies, not the other 36, just those eight, are if you take the state of Texas. How many have ever driven across Texas? About the time you go, oh, is it never going to end, you're a third the way through, right? It's huge. It's huge. Take the state of Texas, cover it a foot and a half deep with silver dollars. Take one silver dollar, we'll make it a 1960 D. Nowhere else in the whole state of Texas is there a 1960 D silver dollar. There's one 1960 D silver dollar. Take Jesus and blindfold him. Put him in a helicopter flying over the state of Texas, a foot and a half deep in silver dollars. One silver dollar, 1960 D. And Jesus has to say, okay, that's far enough. Let's land here. Walk off the helicopter blindfolded. Reach down in his first try and grab the 1960 D silver dollar out of the entire state of Texas. Now, here's the deal. If he misses, even by one, let's say he was close and he misses, Jesus is not the Son of God. But if he grabs it, he is undeniably, there's no other explanation, the Son of God. Jesus, when he came to earth and fulfilled those eight prophecies, grabbed the silver dollar. There is no earthly, scientific, logical explanation for how Jesus fulfills those prophecies, except he is exactly who he said he was. Matter of fact, just to even help you out a little bit, 
If you take all the people who've ever lived on the face of the earth and said, what's the probability that one person could have fulfilled those prophecies by now? The earth would have to exist, you ready? 934,000 more times. 934,000 more times than it's already existed to get one person to fulfill those prophecies. And Jesus did it. Which just simply means this, guys. Jesus does not fit in the liar box. There's no way to take the evidence. There's no way to take the verifiable facts and put Jesus. It just, he doesn't fit. The box is not big enough to explain it. Jesus does not fit in the lunatic box. There's, there's no way someone off his right does what he did, fulfills what he fulfilled, pulls off what he pulled. It, it doesn't explain Jesus. It's not big enough. The only box that has any capacity to make a reasonable sense of the information given is that he is Lord. It's the only one. And look, look, look. I get it, I get it, I get it. I get that even as you're sitting here, you go, Lynn, well, look, it, I get that it's, it's, it's pretty compelling evidence. I get that it's pretty impressive. But I, I just gotta be honest, I'm not 100% there. I'm not, I'm, I'm like 80% there, 70% there. That's great. Because here's, here's the deal. There is no other thought. There's no other explanation that's going to get you any closer. Evolution? Evol anybody, study evolution. I'm just, there are so many holes. There are so many inconsistencies in evolution. I'm just telling you, it's like 30%. And, and in the rest of it is going to be 70% blind faith. Muhammad? Are you, Muhammad gets like 10%. Confucius gets even less. If you can get to 80% with Jesus, there's nothing else, not even atheism, that comes anywhere close. It's still the most logical thing to do next. And I get it, I get it, I get it. I get that that last 20% is terrifying. I get that that last 20% requires faith. You get that God did that on purpose. God said, look, 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 look. I'm going to leave some of this for you've got to trust me. You're going to have to say, look, I, I'm as close as I'm ever going to get, and I, I'm just going to trust God. As scary as this is, as terrifying as this is, I'm going to lean in to God because it's the most reasonable thing to do based on what the Scriptures told me, based on the evidence that's there. The most reasonable thing to do is put my faith in Jesus, even though I'm not 100%. There, how many of you guys saw the Indiana Jones movies? Okay. There's this great clip. Uh, in one of the movies, uh, Indiana Jones is in search of the Holy Grail. It's supposed to be the cup that Jesus drank from. <laughs> okay, no, didn't happen. Never mind, didn't happen. But anyways, he's in search for the Holy Grail. Okay, and uh, his father uh, is dying, and so he's got to get to the cup so he can bring the cup back and let his father drink from it and live. And so he gets to this point where there's this huge cliff, and he's got to walk across the cliff, but there's nothing there. And in the moment, he goes, "Look." So far, everything this little book has told me has been pretty much true. I'm about 80% there, but man, this is terrifying. And it's, it's probably one of the most powerful explanations and illustrations I've ever seen on faith, and yet it's done by secular people. But here you go. We got that for you. Take a look at it real quick.
Hurry! Come quickly! It's a leap of faith. Here's how cool, you realize as Indy's standing there, he's only about 80% there. You know, he's looking at his little book and he's going, look, everything else this book has told me is true, but this just looks crazy. And that last 20% is him stepping off. And the cool part, here's the cool part, he steps on the granite. I mean, what you suddenly realize, he was never in danger. As much trepidation, as much fear as he had, he was stepping on the granite. He was never at risk. And the most reasonable thing for him to do was to step out in faith. You and I, you and I have got to be willing to stand for what we believe. You and I have got to be willing to say to our friends, look, here's the, I, I don't care. I get it. I get it. I get, it. I, I get that you think I'm what, crazy. I get that you don't understand. I get, but can I help you? Can I help get you to 80%? Can I help you understand why the most reasonable thing that you can possibly do is put your faith in Jesus Christ? Look, look, look. It's okay if you laugh at me. I, I, I'm, I, I'm willing to suffer through your criticism because I would die for this. I believe this with all of my heart. And I just think it's a cool moment when Andy gets the other side and he takes that gravel and he throws it back and he goes, oh my goodness, how obvious. And how about for you and I who've already put our faith in Jesus Christ, having the capacity to turn around and throw the gravel on the bridge and say, guys, look, here's the deal. I know you're at 80%, but here's the deal. I've already walked the bridge. I've already put my trust in this, and I'm just telling you, it's granite. And you will not be let down, and you can come and experience what I've experienced and be changed the way I've been changed. Be ready, ready? Be ready to give an answer for why you have your hope. Let's bow our heads. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, I, I'm just gonna pray for every one of us in this room that, that we, if we're not ready to give an answer, would study all the more. That we would stand in that moment and say, look, I, I am unapologetic about my faith in Jesus Christ. I, I will not back down. <laughs> I'm not going to cringe in the shadows. I'm going to do my very best to present the Jesus that I've discovered in the most reasonable fashion that I possibly can. I'm, I'm going to stand firm and help my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers get to that 80% moment.
And then I'm gonna turn and say, hey, you can trust the bridge. I've already crossed the bridge. It works. And it changes you. And it's true. It's so true. I would die for this truth. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.